0: Hello, my name is Alexandra Batone-Bailey, and welcome to the Teaching Beyond the Podium podcast series. This podcast is hosted by the Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of Florida. Our guests share their best tips, strategies, innovations, and stories about teaching. In this episode, Nikki Lyons interviews Brooke Bremer, an instructional designer in the Department of Agricultural Education and Communication and Dr. Oliver Grundman, Clinical Professor and Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning in the College of Pharmacy. In this conversation, they delve into key components of successful course design and development. Thank you for joining us this
1: afternoon. This is one of the podcast uh, episodes that we felt would be really helpful for our UF faculty as we get started on the the 2024 um, online course reviews. And So we want to give them some notes, some tokens, some hot tips and takes that they can use as they're thinking about the review process and how it fits into overall um, teaching and learning. So with that, let's get started. Oliver, could you share a bit with us about your background and your experience with uh, course design and review?
2: Sure, Nikki, and thank you for having me join you on this podcast. My name is Oliver, and I have been with the University of Florida for 16 years now in my current position as faculty and before that as graduate student. And maybe my accent still shines through a little bit here and there. I'm originally from Germany, where I studied pharmacy before I came over to the United States. And uh, I've been leading since 2008 and, and then further advancing in the online graduate Education space, uh, particularly as director of the pharmaceutical chemistry and clinical toxicology programs. And I have a passion for education and how we can improve um, our teaching, uh, how we can learn from learners um, when it comes to utilizing technology and implementing new technologies that make it easier for students to digest the vast amount of content and knowledge that we ask them to acquire. So thank you very much for having me.
1: And Brooke, if you could let the folks know a little bit about your background and your experience with design and review. Of course, thank you, Nikki. Um, I think it's important to
3: note that my background is pretty different from most people in this realm. I was a high school agriculture teacher for seven years. And I actually taught high school in the middle of COVID, so that was when I was really first thrusted into online teaching and with really no sense of guidance or direction. So I have now since found a passion for online education because it became my daily life. I took a position with the university about a year and a half ago. I left the classroom and now I am an e-learning specialist. I kind of do a lot of instructional design work, but I work in-house with the agricultural education and communication department. So still in my wheelhouse, um, but I really enjoy getting to help build some quality online courses. And I myself am now an online master's student. So I really get to see both sides of what a quality online course can look like and what its
1: importance is. I think that's a great segue, Brooke, with you being an instructional designer one of the first questions we have for you is how do you foster collaboration with your instructors during the course design phase to kind of ensure that we have alignment with quality standards?
3: So that's a tough one. I really think it's kind of an art. Um, I think the biggest thing is just transparency. It's different for me because I work in-house, so I know my faculty really well, Um, but I've set up this process in my department where I do kind of like an audit of every course. And I go through every single standard and I turn their course inside out and see where have we met all of these standards and where can we improve on. And I think it's important in that process that it's a collaboration the entire time that I don't pull this boss card where I'm telling them, this is what you're going to do to make a quality course. It's, Hey, we've got one standard where we're not really hitting, There's a couple of different ideas that I think could get us there. Which one do you think matches you and your content best? And I think if you really keep that transparency and that collaboration piece together, you're really going to create a really out-of-this-world class.
1: Thanks. Oliver, as an instructor who has earned several online course designations and works with an ID who I'm like, yes, this person gives us quality content all the time. How do you foster collaboration as a part of that relationship when putting together a great course?
2: We have to remember that instructional designers have been around maybe for the past decade, maybe a little bit longer really officially in higher education to really be a resource for faculty and instructors to uh, structure content and to kind of foster a a thought process going into how do you lay out your course, how do you align learning objectives, course objectives, how do you align what you really want learners to take away from it, from a course. Um, I think before that, everyone was kind of on their own in terms of instructor. Uh, Just uh, the way that I learned instructing is basically through observation, a passive intake of lecturing, right? And I think the the formal education piece that most faculty are lacking when it comes to actually learning about how do you teach, what are learning um, theories that we can utilize in higher education is something that is slightly shifting, slightly, ever so slightly shifting. So getting buy-in from faculty, is an important component when it comes to successfully actually incorporating instructional designers and instructional design principles into a course. And the best way that I thought uh, or I still think this is working is by, one, making clear to faculty, you are still the subject matter expert. You know your content. We're not here to dictate to you how you have to design or set up your content. Instructional designers are an invaluable resource and invaluable in helping you to structure your course in a way that helps you and your learners get the most out of how you place the content, how you connect learning objectives with learning outcomes, with assessments. And it really takes a big load of work off of your plate to have an instructional designer there. And this shift is still occurring. We see uh, and I don't want to make a generational uh, necessarily uh, correlation here, but we see that older older colleagues are a little bit more reluctant to do that because they might feel like somebody is kind of um, uh, treading on their territory uh, as an instructional designer. But those who have been coming into the fold really do see the benefit. They really do see how, how it impacts them. And that is the best way to get instructional designers really into the fold by by these uh, more traditional folks to actually then go on and, and tell their colleagues, hey, this instructional designer has made my life so much easier in regards to getting better grades in the course sometimes, right? Really improving the learning outcomes of students. So I think that has been the number one driver for me to get these collaborations for myself and others as well.
1: I love hearing you talk about the benefits of the partnership because that that is what it is in order for us to kind of get from point A to point B all together. When we think about partnership and actual the course review process, how do you approach that process to ensure that we've got quality and that it's effective whether you're an instructor um, who's submitting a course for review, and an instructional designer who may also be doing that, or who's supporting an instructor, um, or even as an experienced reviewer who is looking at a course now to um as as a part of our, our quest for ongoing improvement, like how do you approach that? And Oliver, I think with this one, I'm gonna start with you.
0: Thank you.
2: Yeah. I, I do think when it comes to the QM. Standards and then the UF standards. Um, there's obviously a a flow of things, right? Uh, you start kind of off with with how do the course objectives and and how do how do folks actually perceive the course environment, right? How can you help them navigate through the course um, and and make kind of a logical sense of where things are? Um, and I do think that. What what we have done in the College of Pharmacy is we have used templates that address many of the UF and QM standards in in basically a very comprehensive manner. What needs to go on top of that is kind of the individual course instructor or, or instructional team kind of feel and personalities, right? You don't want to take that away from the course. And I think that can best be encapsulated Uh, by having uh, introductory video postings that uh, kind of introduce the instructors, sometimes also the instructional team. So that includes the instructional designer, teaching assistants, others who help to foster that connection, with the end goal being that the quality that we see is directly reflected in learner outcomes, if that is uh, via grades or via providing feedback. And that's where I think we haven't paid as much attention in the past often when instructors were evaluated. Um, Now it's much more important, but uh, when we go again, a decade back or so, folks weren't necessarily that interested in in reading through the learner feedback, but now we see definitely how this contributes to this cycle of, okay, let's look at what can we improve. And, And Brooke mentioned that, you know, Let's go through this. Let's go through the different standards and see here, you, you're doing this, but maybe this will even further help your learners to, to do better in their courses. Or it makes your life easier because you have pointed it out the same, the same thing you've pointed out 10 times last time around. Let's make sure that we mention it up front so that students and learners are aware of it right away. And maybe you need to send out a reminder halfway through the semester. So that folks are reminded of it, because we have had these issues in the past. So I think this iterative process really is very powerful, when especially when an instructional designer takes a, a takes their first step at it of, of reviewing a course, um, then sending their feedback to the instructor, and then that feeds actually into also the reviewer process because it informs the reviewer this was an iteration, a prior iteration. Now three years later, when you seek to reapprove uh, your course or get it reaccredited or get the UFNQM stamp on it, um, th- you already went through iterations. So it, it's really helpful to see how how have we changed, how have we evolved over time. Uh, I think that has been a, a huge benefit in in establishing collaborations between instructional designer, reviewer, and instructor. There's no adversary. There's really, we all try to get this cycle moving and continuously improve.
1: Brooke, thinking about that, as you've worked with multiple instructors from design all the way through designation, how do you approach the process when, when trying to ensure that we've got the quality and that the effectiveness is, is evident in the courses?
3: So I think it's important to recall that I do work for the agriculture education and communication department. So my faculty are subject matter experts in education, right? So that's kind of a tricky, tricky little dance we play right there. And so my perspective, I try to take on it is they are great educators. They know what they're doing and they have some really incredible in-person activities and assignments. And so I try to look at it as how can I keep that concept and translate it into an online realm, which is probably not where my faculty's primary study of focus has been was online there. They know how to do it all in person. So I really try to look at it of making that quality experience online, translating, because I think sometimes we we miss that gap. We we get so used to that, read this chapter, do this discussion board, you know, that repetitive nature, and we're missing that engagement piece. So I really try to focus on creating some really engaging um, assignments. And then to kind of piggyback off Oliver with that, that iterative process, I really like the end and reading the feedback and then taking that feedback and implementing those changes for the next semester, because he's right, this this is a cyclic process. It doesn't just end with, I've got my course reviewed and that's it. You know, we have to keep refining and perfecting our course and our students, there are judges, you know, that's who we're here to serve. And so I really like their feedback and I like seeing the positive, Hey, I, this assignment was really awesome. I've never seen something like that or, Hey, you know, I kind of had an issue and, you know, catching things that maybe we don't see on our end. So I think I look at it a little different than your typical instructional designer, but I think the end goal for all of us is kind of the same.
1: Yes, if the students remark on something being good, we know we did it. We we hit the
0: mark. Oliver and Brooke discuss the Quality Matters Framework and Rubric as an intuitive guide for structuring how we design and build courses with the student learning experience in mind. Additionally, they discuss the importance of communicating expectations and providing our students with guidance on the responsible use of artificial intelligence in courses. So let's delve into quality matters a little bit.
1: Could you elaborate on how this framework specifically influences your your take on the course review process. Brooke, let's start Let's start with you on this one.
3: Yeah, so if you're talking more like the, the standards and how Quality Matters is laid out, I think it's, it's kind of common sense. If you really dive into it, there's nothing surprising about it. So I think it just gives you a really good framework to build your course off of and then to kind of audit yourself off of these standards. And what I think is really important about it is sometimes standards are little things that we just forget to include in our courses that maybe we're so good at doing in person, but we forget to translate that online. Um, I really love the section. I think it's the the set of uh, chapter two standards where we talk about kind of informing the students why we're doing these assignments, why this content, why these objectives, why now. And I think Uh, That's my favorite part because we do it so well in person. And then we forget to tell our online students. We don't connect those dots for them. And so I think if we can start with that point and explain to ourselves and then write it out online, why are we doing this content? Why am I doing this assignment? If we can start there, then I think you're going to build a phenomenal class from there on. So I think that's how it kind of guides us.
1: And Oliver, as one of my seasoned folks who knows these quality matter standards, how do they influence you when you're thinking about designing and developing a course?
2: So it's interesting because I, I think, especially what what Brooke just said, uh, when when we have instructors that are used to in person synchronous teaching, moving them into or when they when they explore moving into this online, often asynchronous environment we 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 have to be aware that communication and how we communicate concepts and expectations to students is quite different. We need to make that very explicit. So just basically recording yourself and with your PowerPoints is definitely not sufficient. You can't expect that the students will connect with the content in the same manner. As they do in a classroom if you're standing in front of them. Although you're basically doing the exact same thing when you record yourself, right? There needs to be, there's a barrier in regards to how do we communicate. And I think um, with this motor, you know, churning or going on when, when we come to increased online education, COVID has certainly driven that in the past years. These quality matter standards. As, as Brooke said, they are so intuitive. They, yeah, of course, why didn't I think about that? But you are, you have a completely different framework in regards to how you communicate with students. Sometimes we have the expectation, and this is kind of still the case, that I I have written this, I have announced it, why don't they understand? But let's be honest, do we read everything that we do? We read every single email we get every day? No, for sure not. You know, we prioritize what we read and sometimes things fall through the crack, especially when in, in my experience, I primarily work in professionals. So they have their professional work. They have their eight hour work day. They have their family. Everything is kind of like, ah, and now I need to read through like 10 announcements or 10 discussion posts. Uh, no, I'm skipping it. So. It makes sense, right, from that perspective to really be intuitive of how do I communicate clearly with students, um, make it sweet and brief when it comes to any announcements. Don't write like a, a crime story or something like that or your life story, but also have something that's a little bit unusual sometimes, um, like play positives as, as a technique, voice thread as a technique, right, where you can kind of foster asynchronous interaction and communication with students. And I think the quality matters rubric is just this kind of roadmap that helps you to then implement some of these new technologies. And that's where the instructional designer can can be of tremendous value in offering you assistance with, hey, this technology or this thing, try this thing out and, and see how it goes because they have that knowledge, they are the resource for, for many of the Quality Matters implementation uh, rubrics.
1: Thinking about the, the rubric um, and how now we've had this refresh with Quality Matters now having an addition and then UF also working on some of our standards and in, in reflection of that, what are some things in the 2024 version of our UF and our Quality Matters rubric that you're happy to see? Brooke, let's start with you.
3: Oh, I'm excited for this one. So <laughs> I have obviously, I know the new rubric pretty well. And when I saw that we started talking about artificial intelligence, oh, I just got all giddy. And I have this belief that it's kind of like a hot potato, right? It's kind of hot. It's a little controversial. You don't want to touch it for too long. You know, we're all kind of not sure what to do with this hot potato of artificial intelligence. But I think it's time we address it because whether or not you're a fan of it or, you hate it and I'm not here to preach either way. You still need to communicate with your students what your preference is because we have some faculty in our class in our department who have fully embraced AI. They're using Packback. They're having students use Chat GPT to generate um, um like paragraphs and they're having students edit it for our writing courses, you know, really just taking it. And then you have others who are like, don't you touch it, don't use it on my assignments. I don't want to hear those letters AI. And so, but if we don't tell our students our expectations and we as instructional designers and instructors don't think about, is it okay if my students use that for this assignment? Is it going to help them? You have to kind of be a little open to it and then tell them your ground rules. Let them know, you know, I'm okay with it, but you've got to tell me in X, Y, Z fashion that you've used it. Or if, you use it, you're not supposed to, here's your consequences, because, and I think we often forget, if we're teaching online, they're not just your typical young 20s American students, we've got students from around the world at all different ages, and we can't think with the mindset of what we know here in this country, we have to think about informing everybody where those expectations might be very different, so I was really excited to see that this is um, part of the, the standards now, although I know it's it's a bit controversial and it's a, we're all over the place with it, but I think it's a good thing that we're addressing it.
1: Oliver, how about you?
2: So in the College of Pharmacy for the PharmD program, at the moment, um, the, the rule is kind of no use of AI unless it is explicitly stated in the assignment. Um, and to some degree, I, uh, I, I think that the next generation of graduates no matter if it's on the, on the undergraduate, the professional, or the graduate level, they will face a world. They will face a workplace that will very likely use AI. If not today, then probably in the coming years. So if we put on kind of our our, our uh, I don't know, our, our glasses and try to avert or, or circumvent AI, it's not going to benefit our graduates. Um, and especially at UF who has this across campus AI initiative. I think we want to find ways how we can inform students about AI, how we can make sure that the use of AI is well positioned and that students understand the benefits and limitations of AI. I think especially this understanding of limitations or what are some of the problems with AI is something that is very important to be informed, an informed citizen, an informed graduate in the future. Um, There are these notions of um, basically lawyers being completely AI-driven, right, That, that they just, because it's just interpretation of laws. And then you have these hallucinating AIs and stuff like that, that are coming up with their own cases or with their own references. So I think that's really important to make our graduates and our students aware of that. And I completely agree with Brooke that embracing uh, AI, not only the use, but also how can we leverage AI to benefit our graduates is extremely important. That is both content related as well as how do we design our courses to ensure that we can communicate and, and incorporate AI in a meaningful manner. Uh, again, instructional designers are the lifeblood of, of driving that, I think.
1: I absolutely agree. And, and one of the things that I love that both of you said was that communication is so key to us being successful and ensuring that our students like know what the expectations are. Um so one of the things I enjoy about the rubric is that some of these some of the annotations now are much more in depth than they were before so that you know as faculty and IDs are working through the rubric and trying to you know do their own self audit of the course they can say well we didn't think of it that way um so maybe i can reach out to someone and ask for some assistance with you know figuring out how i can build this into my course or make it to where you know students are using things responsibly and also thinking about like brooke as you said we're kind of on this cusp of what it can do um sometimes it can offer a challenge what are some of the challenges that you have encountered maybe in the course review process and how have you worked to kind of overcome those or to find solutions to those?
3: Yeah, so there's definitely its own set of challenges that come with this. I mean, if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? So I think it's a tale as old as time for myself. It's it's time management. This is no easy feat. This isn't you wake up on a Monday and think you're going to have your course done by Friday, and I think our faculty have realized that. They're like, oh, I can do this on my own. And they dive in and they're like, whoa, oh, this is a bigger beast than what I realized. And so I myself had to learn that lesson too of this is this is a lot of work, rightfully so, and with a huge benefit to both faculty and student. But what we've done over here in our department is we've kind of created this three semester or like timeline or rule. So what we do is we spend an entire semester either designing or redesigning a course that's going online. And within that first semester, I had to create a set of deadlines and kind of a loose framework of here's what we need to tackle first, here's what we're doing next, and then making sure that we've got those deadlines in place that both faculty and myself can meet. Because I like most faculty, ours have typically a two or three-way appointment split. They're teaching, they're doing research and they're working in extension. So they're busy. They're traveling. They're at conferences. They're doing all sorts of things. So trying to just sit down and say, okay, what can we accomplish in this first semester and keep us both on track? Because we both have two very busy schedules. And then we move into the second phase of actually teaching that course. And that's not, at least for me, it's not hands off. There are things that pop up. You know, we've used new tools and the instructors need help guiding through there or or we built something that didn't quite work the way we thought it was going to, and you know, trying to go in and do those fixes. And, and so working our way through that. And then the third semester is doing the proposal and taking the time to sit down and say, here's how I've met all these standards and how can I explain to a course reviewer so they understand my interpretation of how I accomplished this and then completing those peer reviews. And so for us, it's a year long process. And I, I don't know if everybody quite understands all the work that goes into this process. So I would say for us, that that's kind of the biggest challenge that we've had to kind of overcome or, or figure
1: out how to work through. Oliver, what are some, some of the challenges that you've encountered and how did you meet those?
2: I, I do think uh, that that Brooke phrased it very well, that this is not something you just starting on Monday and then you like make a check mark behind it on Friday, done uh, certainly not um certainly not the Friday of that same week <laughs> let's say <it> that way <laughs> um I, I do think that the majority of courses that we are at, uh, redesigning for UF and QM have been taught before. So we kind of already have a knowledge or have a, an idea of this the content that we want in there. Uh, but then the structuring of it is is the is the challenging part sometimes. Uh, While you want to maintain kind of, you know, you use the template that we have in, in pharmacy. And then on top of that, having this individual personality reflected in the course. And it's sometimes challenging because the way that a course or the content was arranged might not actually be very intuitive when it comes to learning objectives and course objectives alignment um, and that's when we really need to put our heads together as a team instructional designer um, and the instruction team um, and and really figure out how can we make how can we align this well without having to twist ourselves or our learners into a pretzel right so um, and and it works out. It it so far it has always worked out. I knock on wood here. Um, that we've been able to do that without having to completely uh, come up with new content, right? Um, because that would be something that would annoy faculty, to be honest. If we made them jump through that hoop, it would make the the work for the instructional designer so much more complicated in regards to overcoming the frustration and the antagonism that instructors might feel, right? Um, as as you pointed out, Brooke, uh, many are so busy with lots of other stuff. You want to help them be successful and align their course, and you don't want to oppose them or want to throw stuff at them that they really don't don't see as beneficial to them. So I think that has been kind of the biggest challenge that we have been facing. I think moving forward, what will be a, a challenge is definitely uh, embracing technology and uh, embracing AI, to be honest. And I think that's why uh, the QM Rubik has adopted that so early to get ahead of that curve that we will likely all face.
1: Oliver, you mentioned that in the College of Pharmacy, you all employ templates. That's the foundation for a course. And then at that point, the instructors work with IDs to really infuse it with their own personality and their own take on how to teach that content. Are there any other strategies or solutions that you found effective when evaluating a course and then possibly getting it ready for review or even submitting it for a review?
2: So what I can definitely recommend from my own teaching, this is something a little bit personal that some folks may or may not want to get behind is to kind of conceptualize, here's the content, here's how I want to deliver this, or how. here's how I imagine the content to be structured and with learning objectives and everything, and then really get together with an instructional designer to figure out what technology can you, for example, use. For example, if, if your course is heavy on reading assignments, per usual is a wonderful tool. That can reduce certainly my involvement quite a bit by streamlining a lot of the you know how much time did they spend reading this? was that what I allocated what I thought would be needed for it um can i can I have them engage with the content by providing comments on certain sections? Can I provide a grade on this? the usual has been just outstanding for that to be honest. And it 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 cut back hours and hours of grading on my end if I if you standardize that right, um, so that's a great tool. I find VoiceThread extremely nice, although not a lot of folks are using it, from what I can tell. To have this, it's basically an asynchronous lecture tool, so to say, because students can comment wherever you are in that VoiceThread recording and can leave their comments if it's a question or oh my god this is something i never thought about you know uh, engaging students in an asynchronous manner so especially when we talk about different time zones when you when you're not able to bring folks together in a synchronous uh, fashion or it's just not feasible if you consider that you've got working professionals Um, I also enjoy though the synchronous interactions, which I facilitate through student office hours. So once a week I offer on the weekends, student office hours, which I offer to to everybody in all of my courses. And then they sign up basically through their course calendar, uh, making an appointment with me. And this one-on-one gives me kind of really insights into how learners think. It helps me to then also put that into the iterative process, right? Where are weak points where we definitely need to catch up. Uh, But also just having that direct interaction gives me a little bit more uh, knowledge on where do do learners stand in terms of content engagement. Uh, So I think it's definitely about the interaction um, of learners with the content, with each other. Uh, What I find uh, with with, uh, younger learners is they're not necessarily interested in, in a direct interaction. They prefer like this back and forth via sometimes like text messaging style, right? So it's more like you Instagram or something like that with somebody or you just, you know, like, like what's happening with somebody and that's fine. I think providing that avenue of different ways to communicate with your instructor is something that we should embrace without adding necessarily additional burden to, either side on the equation that requires us a lot of, to spend a lot of time answering answering these emails. Usually it, it's relatively brief, to be honest, and I enjoy it, I enjoy that exchange.
1: On behalf of the students who love to send a message and receive a reply, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, <laughs> Brooke. What are some of the strategies that you found have been effective?
3: Yeah. So first I just have to say like Oliver, huge Perustal fan. I love it. I think it's incredible. So it just warmed my heart to mention Perustal because I'm a fan over here. So <laughs> to kind of flip the script, you know, our struggles are mine from the instructional design point where, you know, time management. So to help us with that, you know, I've talked about like creating a schedule, that loose framework. And it kind of can be broken down into two ways. One, you know, yes, we plan module by module. Let's talk about our objectives and content. But then I also set deadlines for whole chunks. So by this date, all of these lecture videos are gonna be completed so that we can get them sent off to UF to get them closed captioned so that they're made accessible. Because if I let you work on one module at a time, I mean, if you take a week per module, it's 12 weeks that we're sitting here waiting to try to get these videos closed captioned. Or then I say, okay, now let's move on because we'll have that loose guideline in the beginning. So we know what we're doing each module, but then let's work on it in chunks and we'll take our readings and get those done so that we can get those sent off to be remediated. So again, those are accessible because I think a big thing we all forget is that accessibility piece and that takes time. Yeah, you can throw together a course probably in a weekend if you really rush through it, but did you put all those pieces together that are accessible from students with different needs? And so that's something that I've really had to start putting in the forefront of my planning process. I can't wait till the last minute for certain pieces. And so just kind of playing around with that. So that's a very different look at why time management
1: is so important. Thanks Brooke for once again, like mentioning the accessibility piece and making sure that we're meeting our students needs just because those needs are diverse. And I appreciate that the rubric, as we mentioned before, it makes us like kind of reflect on things that we wouldn't think necessarily, oh, I didn't realize I wasn't doing that. And we want to be proactive about at least trying to make sure everything is included instead of being reactive. And then, oh, now I've got to make things happen because there was an accommodation request. Like if we're already meeting all of our students' needs, then when that accommodation request comes in, we can say, here's what I've already done for you to make sure that you're going to be able to successfully navigate this course. And I will now be able to do the following things to help you out. So I just, I, I love that as well, like planning and then Let's execute according to our plan. Um, also thinking about this, how do you measure the impact of your course design changes or improvements? So we have a course that we've taught for you know three semesters. We're we're getting ready to put it in for review. We do, we get the feedback. Like, how do you know, you know, if it's like, all right, the, the efforts that we made have gotten us like solid results that we want. And does that appear in the process for you? Or do you notice that after the review process? And Brooke, I'll start with you on this one.
3: I look at this as kind of, there's two ways that we get feedback. So obviously the first one is that peer review process where we have other faculty or instructors or whomever it may be that review our course. And I really love that piece because, while my background is in ag ed and I work in the ag ed department, we're kind of creatures of habit, right? We forget that not everybody is starting off in the same place. Our students don't have the same maybe basic knowledge that we're expecting them to have. So to have somebody from outside of our subject matter come in and give us their perspective from that teacher-instructor viewpoint really helps because they can catch some things that maybe filter the cracks on our end, and then they give us some really good ideas because you know, when you've been looking at the same thing for so long, you're, you know, like nose blind, like you don't see. And so I like getting that outside perspective. Then the other piece, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love spreadsheets. I I just, I have, I don't know, I just can't help myself, but everything goes into a spreadsheet, whether it needs to or not. So in my department, I've created this running spreadsheet with my faculty's Gator evaluation scores. And we have compared their scores from before and after a course has gone through quality matters. And it, it takes some time to put that together. This is my own little weird hobby that I just keep doing. And then I not only compare their course kind of before and after, but compare it to the department, the college and the university scores, and then do my little calculations in Excel and see the, increase or decrease. I have rarely seen a decrease. It's almost always an increase and pretty significant at that. So I've got this funny short story is there's somebody at the university who sends out emails through a list that i am on and their signature says, in God, we trust all others must bring data. Now I'm not here to preach or talk about that, but I'm definitely here to bring the data because our data tells a clear story that our evaluations are consistently higher. And it's because we've designed courses to have this high quality. And so, um, I mean, just looking at that data on a spreadsheet and seeing that black and white, I mean, we're all scientists, right? That's we're, Whether it's social or hard science. And so in the spirit of that quote, we've got the numbers, we've got the data to support that this quality matters process is working and our students really see it. And, and that I think is the key
1: part is that the students see and feel and they really appreciate what we've done. Absolutely. We love some data. We love a spreadsheet. Let's go. So Oliver, for you, additionally, like, are there any metrics that you use to see improvements? Um, are there any particular, like, feedback tools that you use? Or is it something similar to what Brooke is doing?
2: So definitely all of the above that, what, what Brooke is, is saying, um, digging a little bit deeper sometimes in the instructor reports and the Gator evals to see what, what specific students said about, you know, what tools they liked. But especially when I started using, for the first time, some of these tools when it came to Perusual, or VoiceThread, or we use a tool uh, at some point called Highlighter, which we don't use any longer. Um, I I kind of just provided a brief survey like in Canvas to students how they liked the use of this tool, what they found helpful, what they found was not helpful, or what we really provide them with, either the technical or a um an assignment challenge or more of an academic challenge uh in regards to using that that tool. And that has informed um, many of my decisions, to be honest, when it comes to the use of technology, uh, both on the Gator evals as well as on the on the brief survey, like maybe two questions or so survey.
1: And and as a follow-up, Oliver, on the pre-survey that you include in your course. This is one that you create yourself with specific questions that you want to ask your students as far as, you know, how the semester will go?
2: Correct. Yeah. So this is often course specific. I don't do it every semester. I really only do it when a new tool is being introduced. And I want to see how do students perceive the benefits and potential limitations of that tool being used? Because we do have technical challenges sometimes, uh, with students when it comes to the use of U of apps, for example, when they have to run something remotely, that they have to be connected through the VPN. So all of these things that sometimes play into that where, again, we haven't thought about that. So it's it's kind of a learning curve for us as well as instructors, as we use these tools. And what Brooke mentioned, the work of an instructional designer is really never done when it comes to, you know, you be involved throughout the semester. If, if new new things are implemented, Um, you want it to be a well-oiled machinery, uh, but there will be hiccups along the way. It's just the way it is.
3: I have to add off, Oliver, you know how you talked about like getting that student feedback, not just your data, but like the comments. Um, In my department, we meet weekly as an entire department, and um, it's really fun, but our department head always starts off each week kind of just going over announcements and some housekeeping stuff, and I think instructors are going through their tenure promotion or all those reviews. I'm not an instructor, so I keep to myself on that. But my department head was like, I take the time and I read all of my faculty's evaluations. And he said, you would be surprised if you saw how many comments I got from students saying they hate online learning, but this is the best class they've ever taken. Or I hate reading and I hate that Perusol makes me read. But man, did I actually get something out of it? And so it was very heartwarming for not only me and ID and for that instructor, but it's bigger than us. Our department heads are seeing that and that information is going higher up the channel and it's, it's more than us and everybody is seeing the quality and the benefits of what this review process is all about. And it's all because those students are giving us their genuine feedback. And so I just had to add that little piece there because I really like what Oliver said about getting them to tell you what they do or don't
1: like. I love that your department is is treating this as like a part of the culture. Like let's sit down and celebrate what we are doing well so that we can continue doing that and making sure our students are having valuable experiences. And you really do see a lot of just gold nuggets when you get into those free response answers. I only have a couple more questions for you here. Are there any innovative approaches or practices that you have encountered or implemented in the course review process that have been proven particularly impactful or forward thinking. So like, Brooke, I know you you said you've you set up a schedule, you know, with the faculty you work with and you say, okay, here's our goals. Let's get this done, this done, this done. Um, are there any other things that you've, you've done and you found like this works for us. We're going to we're gonna keep doing this. Share this with my friends who might not be doing it just yet. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean,
3: we do have some templates that I've created in-house, like Oliver's department has, um, but something that I felt in my spirit that I just had to do was I created a fake or faux canvas course, so to speak. So I made this class. I think it's called like Introduction to Communication in the Bovine Industry, along with kind of like our department and what we teach but I made up this class made up standards and I created it as if it was a real course that I was being taught Now I didn't make 15 16 weeks worth of content I only did like two for the sake of time but I really found I could tell my faculty all day long what a quality course looks like and I can show tell them all these pieces but I wanted to show them and I wanted to show one that in my opinion and for the for the rubric it is an A plus high quality course. So I pulled out all the stops. I mean, it's a beautiful course physically, you know, with really attractive banners and images. And then um, it just really flows really nice. I've got really nice weekly introductions that kind of explain what's happening, um, created some innovative assignments where we don't just say, here's here's the directions. It's here's the skills I hope you take from this assignment. Here's the knowledge I'm hoping you take away from this. And I mean, really just pulled out all the stops. And so when I begin to work with my faculty and I audit their class and I you know, give them some suggestions, I say, all right, let's take a second. Let me show you what it could look like. And almost always they're like, wow, okay, I get it now. I see what my class can look like. And so I think sometimes we forget, at least as an ID, I look at my job is we also have to make the classes attractive and easy to navigate and make the student open this homepage and go, wow, I can already tell this instructor put a lot of time into this course because black and white text, it just, it drains the eyes. It's boring. Like Oliver said, our students are busy. They are professionals. They have lives. They don't want to read through. 20 pages of information. Let's give them something really easy to look at that's easy to navigate. So for me, it's my little faux course. And from that, I do have template pages that our faculty use that kind of are geared more towards our department and our content. And then also to piggyback off Oliver's, those tools that we're using, whether we're using Perusol or PlayPosit or VoiceThread or Packback or any of these things, it's if we're using all these innovative tools that makes that class so much better too, if it's a right fit, not every tool fits every subject and and every week. And that's something that's really important to note. Um, And so I think that's a very crucial piece is not only showing them what it can look like, but providing
1: them with some really innovative tools to take them to that next level. Thank you, Brooke. Oliver, over in the college of pharmacy. Are there anything, you know, you are doing, you're like, mm-hmm, we're setting the pace. People need to look over here. They need to see what we're doing. Well,
2: of course, always, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. There's there's lots of innovation going around. We've got a lot of smart people across all units at UF um, uh, that, that are that are innovating. Uh, what we have been using for a long time is uh, Turnitin as a, basically as a, a little bit of a plagiarism tool right where you basically check the similarity index or similarity score between what the students submitted. Um, since many of our assignments are essay based now our instructional designer Brendan Heinz uh, has come up with an idea because Turnitin in also checks grammar and, and all of that stuff actually, which is something that I think is not utilized when you just look at, look at it from a plagiarism tool being used so and it's not really like we want to punish students for it we want to not make them plagiarize right so uh, at the beginning of the semester we mentioned all the plagiarism issues and and how you how you should avoid them by copying and pasting you know copying and pasting stuff um but what we now are trying for the first time, and I'm very excited to see the data later in the semester, is to allow students to submit without it being added to the database and turn it in, to submit their assignment to turn it in, get not only feedback on the similarity score, but also on their grammar and you know text sentence. So a little bit like grammarly, a crossover from grammarly and, and the similarity score. And I'm really excited to see what the data will look like at the end of the term, if students are given that chance. Because again, uh, we we don't really want to punish them. It's just that they need to write in their own words because that's the way that we know they understand the concepts, right? So uh, I'm really excited for that uh, because we always have had issues with, with plagiarism. And uh, I do think that, might help us to to get that a little bit under control. In addition to that, we also have international students. We have students that do not have English as their first language and they often struggle. They have this kind of already anticipatory angst kind of about and fear of I cannot express myself appropriately in English. And they might be more inclined to then copy and paste from a journal article. Because they don't know how to express it properly because sometimes they lack the the simply the, the terms in English, right or to how to write it in their own words. So I hope that this mm, this test testing of Turnitin for this purpose will benefit all students, but in particular those who do not have English as their first language
1: wow that that is like an interesting take on like a tool that we're you know we're all familiar with like everyone's you know. Do we have turn it in? Yeah, sure. But to kind of use that like proactively as a as a preventative measure, I love that. So before we wrap up, I want I want to thank both of you for giving us your time and coming to give the people your very unique and and interesting perspectives on course design and how that rolls into course review, and then ultimately how we are teaching for our students to ensure that they're really getting a high quality education here at the University of Florida, no matter what format or what method that they're, they're receiving their instruction in. So before we leave, this is a little question. We said, Ooh, we like this one. Are there any questions that you might have for each other when you're wondering, oh, you know, let me ask this instructor, this particular thing, you know, what? As a reviewer, what do you think about this? I, you know, I want to ask an ID. Like, do you all really do this thing right here? Are there any questions that you might have for each other?
3: Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind, um, especially because I work in my subject area, so I'm kind of like I've got like my blinders on. I only know agriculture education, and so I'd like to ask Oliver from an outsider perspective, in terms of an instructor, what is something that you wish your instructional designers that you worked with, what do you wish that they did different or that they knew about you and working with you or what they kept in the forefront of their brain? Because uh, that could help me also and maybe anybody else who's listening.
2: That's a that's a great point, Brooke. And what I, what I try to establish with all of our IDs as I do with everybody else, no matter if it's staff or faculty or uh, grad students especially uh, is don't hesitate to to talk to me. Um, don't feel like there is a barrier between us in regards to me being faculty and you being considered staff or something like that. There should and there whenever we create these sometimes artificial barriers in our own mind, it actually doesn't contribute to effectiveness or effective communication. if you If you know that I can do something better, if you know, uh, how you can benefit the course, and if you need to nudge me to meet a deadline, then do that. Um, if if I uh, if I'm too snobbish to acknowledge you as you know an equal in this course design process, then I don't I don't deserve to be where I am. To be honest, so that's that's it's a very personal take. To be honest, so. You might not want to use that for all other instructors alike, but I, I know that there are some personalities out there. Now it's now I've said it on a podcast. Wonderful. But anyways, uh no, I think it's really important to have a very good report and to establish that on a on a personal level. Um and and really clearly state: hey, if if there is something we need to talk about, or if 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 you need to kick my behind in order to meet this deadline, please do it. Uh, sometimes it's it's not that I ignored it on purpose. It's just I have these ten other things on my priority list, uh, and it goes kind of back to human decency for me, to be honest. So
3: I think it's it's poetic that you said like these invisible like barriers because I think it's reciprocated. I don't know if other IDs feel it, but I think maybe I create those barriers myself, and I think I'm just staff these faculty are way more accomplished and published and higher up. And I think maybe sometimes we put ourselves in that little barrier and we think I don't have the right to, to email you another time or to say, Hey, I know you really like how you do this thing, but man, I've got an idea that might be better. And those are kind of those boundaries in that ID and instructor relationship. So I really appreciate you acknowledging that. And hopefully the other instructors have that same sentiment.
2: Yeah. So and, and 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 to be reciprocal and 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 this actually goes a little bit back to this interaction between instructional designer and faculty instructor all of that. Um do do you sometimes feel that faculty or instructors kind of because I I do think also that in in uh, instructors are sometimes contributing to this barrier, right? That there's this the separation of instructional designers and and instructors instead of really working together. But do do you feel that your input as an instructional designer and your knowledge, you have formal training specifically in instructional design, uh, which faculty do not have? Most instructors, yes, I completed a master's in in education in instructional technology, but most others do not. I I simply did it because I'm really passionate, not that others are not passionate about it, but I'm passionate about this particular principle of how can I apply design principles uh, or constructivist learning and stuff like that. But do you feel like sometimes your voice isn't sufficiently considered when it comes to the, the course design process?
3: Man, you're putting me on the spot for that, aren't you? Hopefully, my department's not listening. No, just kidding. I love my faculty. I enjoy working with them, but I would say in some instances, I feel like maybe I'm not heard, and maybe because I'm not the subject matter, and and I think again, I'm in one of those tricky departments where my faculty are education masters. You know, that's what they work on, and so for us, it's maybe a little more challenging with trying to. say, I might know a little bit more about the online world than you do. And and that's a very hard role to navigate. You don't want to upset anybody. It's a very delicate role, one that sometimes I think I have quite a bit of anxiety about because I don't, I love my faculty and respect them and I never would want to upset them or overreach. And so um, sometimes I feel like I'm maybe a little too extra nice. Like in my emails, I'm like, Hey, I, you know, don't take offense. And I, you know, you really but should I have to? I mean, I'm, I'm a professional and, and I'm only giving ideas that I think work. But then other times, man, my faculty are like, Brooke, you know better. You tell me what you think. And, and I don't think they realize how important that is to me. Like they're giving me that gratification and showing me that they do respect me and the knowledge that I bring to this table. And I'm not sure if the other IDs feel that way, but it's a very complex relationship that I think both sides... Probably have their own insecurities that we battle that are probably just figments of our imagination that we're just making up here.
1: <laughs> Man, y'all brought some good questions. I wrote both of them down. I said, Oh, save that, save that, save that. I'm running that by some of my friends. But I think that. I think what you just brought up was is an important part of what you were mentioning earlier, as and that's kind of been a thread throughout this whole um, episode, as far as having communication between IDs and instructors and understanding that it's a partnership. And then when we are all bringing our own perspectives to the table, when everyone's bringing their unique uh, skill sets to the table, we can create some some serious magic. So I, I really genuinely want to thank both of you for joining us today and giving us a piece of your time. We're going to give you back some more of your time because we know you've got a lot to do. And with that, I just want to thank everyone for tuning into this episode and I'm going to turn it back over to Alex.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Teaching Beyond the Podium podcast series. For more helpful resources developed by the Center for Teaching Excellence, visit our website, teach.ufl.edu. We're happy you joined us. And we hope to see you next time for more tips, strategies, and ideas on teaching and learning at the University of Florida.